This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. The title of our panel is Ruling the Law, Judges, Legislators, and the Struggle for Judicial Independence. The idea of judicial independence developed in England in the 17th and 18th centuries, and in that context developed mainly to protect individual litigants from interference by the crown in criminal cases and high-stakes political cases. Um, its basis in our Constitution grew out of that then. The idea, in other words, being that we were going to set up judges, courts, with the responsibility to adjudicate individual cases, and they needed to be independent in making their decisions. Now, of course, the problem of judicial independence is not difficult when it comes to individual cases, criminal cases and such, because to the extent that courts interpret law in the cases and create issues for the larger political public, you can change the law. At the time the Constitution was ratified, although some people had begun to think about the problem of judicial review and a nascent practice had emerged, it had not really developed well enough, and when they structured the judiciary in Article III, it was primarily with the English background in mind and not with the idea that the court would be playing a dominant role in constitutional interpretation. As that role emerged in the 1790s, the first decade after the Constitution was ratified, the issue of judicial independence became a major conflict in politics. And so it has remained ever since. Thomas Jefferson, after winning the election in 1800, found himself locked in conflict with the Supreme Court and the lower federal courts. Uh, with Congress's assistance, he abolished one court. He changed the procedures in the Supreme Court in order to punish the judges by forcing them to ride around the country to hear cases, which, as you can imagine, in the uh, early 19th century was not very much fun. Uh, he used impeachment to intimidate judges. And the upshot of the conflicts during the Jeffersonian administration was a redefinition of judicial independence. To the extent that Jefferson had arguments, they turned very much on the fact that judges in the earlier period felt comfortable engaging in open politicking um, in using their position from the bench to advance political agendas. And a kind of compromise was reached where judges would act on the bench in the way that we think of them acting today, deciding their cases without using it to reach outside for direct political benefit, and in exchange would be left independent from political interference on their side. But the difficult problem of balancing independence with accountability remained. It is indeed intractable and to some extent inevitable in a society that is committed to both democracy and to the rule of law, in which what courts do has policy implications inevitably beyond the immediate case. And so conflicts like that that occurred during the Jeffersonian era have recurred throughout US history. When Andrew Jackson was president, there is an apocryphal tale where he supposedly uh, said something like, uh, tell Chief Justice Marshall to go enforce his own opinion. That actually never happened. But he did, he did threaten non-enforcement in certain cases. More important, the Jacksonian movement pushed for and achieved elections of state judges throughout the states. It was an effort at the time to recapture control over the law by making judges accountable to the same public. The ironic effect was a more activist bench and a more activist state judiciary as the real first um, upsurge of judicial review took place uh, with, with judges who felt more empowered to act by virtue of their electoral accountability. Over the course of the middle of the 19th century, that activity was mimicked at the federal level and federal bench also began to engage in more um, active judicial review. Uh, that came to a head in the Dred Scott decision in 1856, 
which produced an enormous backlash against the court. Once in office, President Lincoln refused to enforce Dred Scott, uh, for instance, granting passports to African Americans, um, abolishing slavery in the District of Columbia, and so forth, all actions that were inconsistent with the decision, um, as well as ignoring some judgments that went against what he believed was necessary for national security, uh, and so forth. Um, in the wake of the uh, Civil War, uh, the court sort of moved uh, to a lower profile in politics for a while, but reemerged during the Progressive Era as an active participant, striking down a number of laws in the 1880s and 1890s, uh, coming to a head during the Progressive Era with a movement out of the progressives to, to bring the courts under control uh, and diminish their independence. Teddy Roosevelt uh, pushed for judicial recall, both of judges and of opinions, um, and there were various other efforts in that period. Uh, the court once again receded in importance until re-emerging in the 1920s uh, as an active force during the so-called Lochner era um, uh, in striking down legislation designed to change uh, labor and welfare. Um, that came to a head during the New Deal uh, with the court packing plan and FDR's effort to uh, bring the court so-called to heel. Um, and, and so on. Uh, it reemerged again in the civil rights era and in the wake of Brown. Um, and the period from the civil rights era to today was understood at least by most contemporary actors and also by historians as a period in which the recurrent fights seemed to be fading. Uh, and there seemed to be an acceptance of the court's role as the chief interpreter of the Constitution and the court's role at both the state and the federal levels as as an interpreter of law whose decisions had to be respected and changed only uh, through other kinds of processes beyond direct pressure on the bench. Uh, it took time. As late as the late 1960s, President Nixon ran a law and order campaign against the Warren Court, but there was a gradual acceptance. One of the key signs of the gradual acceptance has been, in our lifetime, witnessing the uptick in the stakes perceived for appointment to the Supreme Court. It's not coincidental that it's only in the late 1980s the stakes with each appointment to the Supreme Court become much, much higher because of acceptance of the fact that once on the bench, the judge's decisions must be respected. In recent years, though, and to the surprise of many, there has been a reemergence of pressure against the court in a variety of ways. Um, we've seen this over the last few years in things like the controversy over Terry Schiavo, statements by um, Senator Frist in the Senate and Tom DeLay when he was in the House about the need to reuse impeachment and find other devices for bringing judges under control. Um, bills in a handful of states, oh, actually I think it was just South Dakota, to make judges actually liable for bad judgments and so on. And so it's against the background of this reemerged controversy um, that we put together this panel. It's my pleasure to moderate the panel and introduce you to the featured panelists. So our first panelist is someone who doesn't really require an introduction, but I will attempt to do her justice anyway. Okay, I didn't write that line, I have to admit. <laughs> Former Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, Sandra Day O'Connor, was nominated to the court as its first female justice in 1981 by President Ronald Reagan. Justice O'Connor has dedicated virtually her entire professional life to public service and has served in all three branches of the government, beginning as a deputy county attorney. Uh, her path ultimately led to service in Arizona as an assistant attorney general, a state senator, and a state judge. She retired from the Supreme Court of the United States in 2006, but has not seemed to slow down at all. She was appointed last year to serve as the 23rd Chancellor of the College of William and Mary, 
and she also serves on the Board of Trustees of the Rockefeller Foundation, the Executive Board of the Central European and Eurasian Law Initiative, and is a member of the bipartisan Iraq Study Group of the United States Institute of Peace. She's also here, I should say, celebrating her 55th law school reunion. Second, we have with us today the Honorable Ming W. Chin, who is an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of California. Justice Chin previously served as the Presiding Justice of the First District Court of Appeals uh, in San Francisco. Prior to his appointment as an Associate Justice of that court, he served as a judge of the Alameda County Superior Court, and prior to that, was partner at an Oakland law firm specializing in business and commercial litigation. Justice Chin obtained his BA and JD from the University of San Francisco, and after graduating law school, served two years as a captain in the US Army, including a year in Vietnam, after which he was awarded the Army Commendation Medal and Bronze Star. Presently, Justice Chin is the chair of a commission on judicial impartiality appointed by Chief Justice Ron George. I should have said, hold your applause to the end, but um, now it doesn't matter. Last but definitely not least, we have the Honorable Rebecca Love Corliss here with us today. Justice Corliss is currently the Executive Director of the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System at the University of Denver. Prior to this, she served as a Justice on the Colorado Supreme Court for 11 years, resigning in January 2006 to establish and lead the Institute. The author of more than 200 opinions and dissents during her tenure, Justice Corliss also spearheaded significant reforms in the court systems relating to juries, family law, and attorney regulation. Justice Corliss also worked as an arbitrator and mediator for the Judicial Arbiter Group in Denver um, and was appointed to the Colorado Supreme Court in 1995. She earned her AB from Stanford in 1973 and her JD in 1976. Uh, the way we'll proceed is pretty straightforward. Oops, The way we'll proceed is, is straightforward. Each of the panelists will give an opening statement for five to seven minutes just to put the issues out on the table. I will then ask them some questions and then we'll turn it over to you. Hope you enjoy the program. Justice O'Connor. You want me to start? Please. All right. A few remarks. When I stepped down from the Supreme Court, I had become increasingly aware, as all of us have, about the uh, attacks on judges, um, proposals in Congress to take various actions against federal judges, to reduce their budgets, to strip the federal courts of jurisdiction over certain classes of cases, to impeach any federal judge who would cite a foreign judgment in an opinion for the court, and so on. Many propositions floating around Congress. Now, they haven't become law, but it certainly made us aware of Congress's concerns. The dean mentioned the Terry Schiavo case, and it had progressed through the Florida court system, and the Florida courts had determined that Ms. Schiavo was, in effect, brain dead, and that her husband could permit the doctors to disconnect her feeding tubes. 
and the appeal was brought by her parents, as you may recall, and the Florida courts sustained their earlier ruling. Then Congress decided to step in and in an unusual law addressed only to that case, Congress ordered the federal courts to review the Florida court's decisions. And that was most unusual, but it was another um, example of the attention and concern that members of Congress had about actions of federal judges. And similar things have been occurring in state legislatures around the country. The jail for judges proposal being perhaps the most dramatic, it was on the ballot in South Dakota and would have removed judicial immunity from judges and jurors as well and allowed the imposition of fines and or jail sentences for an erroneous, so-called erroneous decision by the state court. And um, in Becky Corliss's state in Colorado, there was a proposition on the ballot recently to retroactively reduce the terms of office of appellate judges in that state. That also um, failed at the ballot box, but there are many examples at both the state and the national level of increased attention to judges. And we hear the term activist judge thrown around a lot. I used to think that was a judge who got up and went to work, but apparently it's not. It means something else. And it's elementary high school civics that we have three branches of government, and each regulates the other by our intricate system of checks and balances. It's a system that the framers of the Constitution devised to keep our country um, in balance, and by and large, through the years, I think it's worked well. The great Chief Justice, John Marshall, who served something like 34 years on the court, spent much of his time trying to build an institution that would be respected by the other branches of government and whose decisions would generally be followed by the other branches. Over time, that system has worked pretty well. There have been only two real incidents in which a president has declined to follow a Supreme Court opinion. The first, as mentioned by the dean, was in the case of Worcester versus Georgia, dealing with the Indian tribes, such as the Cherokees, that were living at the time in North Carolina and that region. And um, it was decided by states, including Georgia, that they wanted all Indian tribes out of their states and to move on the other side of the Mississippi River to make land available for um, white settlers, in effect. And the case Worcester versus Georgia raised the constitutionality of that action by the state of Georgia. And the Supreme Court, in an opinion by John Marshall, said no, that's unconstitutional. And that's when Andrew Jackson, who was then president, is reported to have said, John Marshall made his decision, now let him enforce it. Whereupon, President Jackson ordered General Winfield Scott to round up the Indians and drive them on what we now call the Trail of Tears down to what is part of Oklahoma today.
today on the other side of the Mississippi River. And well over half the Indians who were driven out uh, died along the way. It was a very tragic part of our nation's history. And the other example of presidential refusal to follow an opinion occurred when Abraham Lincoln was ordered by then Chief Justice Roger Taney to bring Mr. Merriman, a legislator in Maryland, before him to review his arrest order, which had been um, issued under Lincoln's orders at the time of the Civil War when rebels in Maryland were cutting the telegraph lines and interfering with the transport of northern troops to Washington, D.C. And President Lincoln had many grounds, of course, for being concerned because he didn't want Washington, D.C. to be surrounded by southern sympathizers and cut off from the rest of the nation. So he did refuse very clearly to follow uh, Roger Taney's order uh, to deliver Mr. Merriman before the court. So aside from that, I think the nation has gone along pretty well, but we're in a very difficult time now in terms of relations between the branches. And whatever courts do, they do have the power to make a president or a legislature or a governor or a state legislature really angry with a decision. And I suppose if courts and judges don't make the president or the legislative body mad some of the time, they probably aren't doing their jobs. So judges have to rely on the notion developed by the framers that our concept is that the other branches of government will rely on judicial decisions and carry them out uh, despite some unhappiness with them and that the other branches will not retaliate on the judges making those decisions. And that's what we're facing today, different versions of retaliation. And when I retired, I thought perhaps I should be active in trying to discuss across the country with the American people some of the concerns that arise out of this current problem. And I've lived a long time now. I mean, I'm celebrating class of 52 here. So, <laughs> in my long life, I don't remember a time like this. There were, there was a period when I used to see, I lived on the Lazy Bee Ranch in Arizona and New Mexico, and along the highway in my um, early years at Stanford and high school and then Stanford, there used to be an impeach Earl Warren sign on the highway. And that was a tense time for a while, but it didn't have to do really with courts and judges generally. It was unhappiness with the Earl Warren court and the Brown versus Board of Education decision and some of the criminal decisions, like the Miranda rights case. But I wanted to spend some time discussing with the American people why we have an independent judiciary, what the framers had in mind. And of course, what they didn't like was that during the pre-revolutionary time, the King of England, if he didn't like some judge's decision, would dismiss him. 
Now that didn't happen in England itself, but in the colonies it did. And that greatly angered the Americans at the time. And they wanted a system where the judges' positions would be secure and they could make decisions, even if it went against the crown, so to speak. So that was very much in, in the minds of the framers. And we need to remember why they wanted it that way. And individual Americans really value and appreciate the Bill of Rights and our individual rights under it. And the only way to enforce those is through an independent, fair, and impartial judiciary. So I've spent time working on that and making comments such as these and working on an educational program, but more about that later. Thank you. Um, Justice Ching? To say that Justice O'Connor has spent some time working <laughs> on this issue is an understatement. Now, there is a rumor across the country that Justice O'Connor has retired. Believe me, she has not. <laughs> she is busier now than she ever has been, and she is doing just remarkable work in bringing to the fore these many issues that involve judicial independence. Now, Justice O'Connor mentioned that judges make people mad a lot. <laughs> I mean, we're not doing our jobs if we're not making people mad. She mentioned governors and senators and congressmen, but think about it. Every judge trying a case every day makes a decision. Half the people that leave their courtroom every day are really mad. <laughs> How do we enforce those judgments? Now, when you think about it, we have, as judges, we have no army, we have no power of the purse, we only have the power of our opinions. They must be reasoned, they must make sense, the people must accept them. How do we do that? We do that by having a judiciary that is independent and impartial. We do that by respecting people that come into our courtrooms with their problems so that all the people who leave our courtrooms, hopefully, even if they lose, will accept the opinion of the court. Now, many of us are going to talk about accountability. And there certainly must be accountability. Now, Justice O'Connor mentioned some of the criticism of judges. I, frankly, don't think that judges should be afraid to experience criticism from the public. But I do agree with Justice O'Connor that the level of this criticism has gotten so violent and vehement that it threatens an impartial and independent judiciary. Last November, my Chief Justice, Ron George, the Chief Justice of California, called a judicial summit. The reason for the summit was to look at what is happening in California and what is happening across the country with the criticism of the courts. Justice O'Connor graciously keynoted that summit. It examined some of the problems across the country and in California. As a result of that summit, my Chief Justice 
appointed a commission on impartial courts. Now you might wonder why we selected that as a topic rather than a commission on judicial independence. As it turns out, it is difficult to talk to non-legal audiences about judicial independence. There are some polls that say that if you ask people whether or not they want their judges to be independent, you get an 85% response, no. If you ask whether or not you, they want their judges to be impartial, you get an 85% yes. I mean, who in their right minds would want to go into a courtroom with a judge that has already made up his or her mind? You want a judge who is fair, impartial, and independent. So we have created, the Chief Justice has created a commission on impartial courts. The commission has four, it just started, I happen to be the chair. The uh, Chief Justice has four task forces. One to examine what should be done in the area of public education. How do we convince people that impartial and independent judges and judiciaries are really important? Number two, we're going to look at the selection and retention process. Number three, we're going to look at campaign finance. Number four, we're going to look at campaign conduct. Now, the selection process, I won't bore you with the details of the selection process here in California, but most of you already know that there are not generally elections for judges in California. It is really an unusual situation. Most judges are appointed by the governor after an evaluation by the judicial nominee, uh, the, the uh, evaluation commission, after the State Bar Commission does the evaluation of any candidates that are sent to them by the governor. The uh, commission does an evaluation, sends out hundreds of applications, goes through the application that the candidate has sent to the governor, uh, which lists all the major cases that they have worked on, the opposing counsel, the judge on the other side, uh, uh, the, the uh, judge in the case, and the commission talks to all those people and says, what kind of an attorney is this? The commission then gives an evaluation to the governor's office. It's either not qualified, uh, qualified, uh, well qualified, or exceptionally well qualified. After the governor sees that evaluation, the governor will determine whether or not an appointment will be made. So we often say that we want a process that is based on merit, uh, I think that the California process is very close to that. Now, it's not a separate commission. Uh, the, the, the governor is not limited, uh, but the governor does have all of that evaluation uh, before him, before he makes the appointment. Now, where does the election process come in? When the, the Superior Court judges, uh, trial judges in California, have six-year terms. If the judge serves out the end of his or her term, he, he does not leave the appointment open for the governor to make an appointment. Most of the judges leave whenever their retirement date comes up and will leave the appointment to the governor. But in those cases, uh, the att attorneys or commissioners or others in the, in the other lawyers in the community can run for those open seats. So the, the headlines that you usually read in the paper 
are about those, uh, 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 usually those elections. Now, a sitting judge can be challenged. That's unusual. But in Los Angeles, in the last round, a, a very distinguished judge with a very unusual uh, sounding foreign name, and I'm kind of sensitive to sounding foreign names. Uh, Ming Chen is not exactly John Jones, but the judge had a very unusual foreign name and she lost in a challenged election. Now that is another way that we have elections in California. And frankly, that election upset a lot of people because a distinguished judge lost in what was thought to be an unfair election. The governor remedied that. He reappointed that judge to the bench. So there are solutions to these problems, but we want to try to anticipate the problems before they develop. That's the reason for the commission. We do not feel, the chief, my chief justice does not feel that we're in crisis mode here in California, but we want to look at the problems before they arise so that we have plans in place to handle them if they ever come to our doorstep. Uh, Justice O'Connor mentioned the jail for judges in the Dakotas. Uh, she also mentioned the um, uh, Colorado uh, uh, problem. I'm sure Justice Corliss will tell us more about that. There was another one in Oregon where geographically they were going to try to remove some sitting judges, which also failed. So with these uh, initiatives across the country, by the way, I hope he isn't in the audience, but uh, the gentleman who brought the uh, uh, proposition to uh, the Dakotas uh, is from California. Uh, certainly not from Stanford. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we are uh, by this commission on impartial courts trying to anticipate what the problems might be in the future and to look at them ahead of time before problems develop. Thank you, Justice. Justice Corliss? Thank you. It is as any of you could certainly uh, suspect and honor to be a part of this panel uh, with the three of you. I joked backstage that Justice O'Connor is probably the only person who could have competed with the football game and we might have been having a fairly cozy <laughs> conversation but for her presence. Uh, I, in a very small shadow of a way, uh, made a similar decision upon stepping down from the Colorado Supreme Court that Justice O'Connor made in stepping down from the court. Uh, I decided to dedicate myself to these very issues as well, although from a slightly different perspective and platform. We formed in Colorado, as Larry has said, uh, a what we refer to, for lack of a better term, as a think-do tank uh, under the auspices of the University of Denver, dedicated to trying to figure out answers to these problems and propose reforms and solutions dedicated to that end. Coincidentally, or perhaps not so coincidentally, uh, our inception coincided with this rash of initiatives that showed up on the midterm election ballots around the country last year, of which you've already heard mention, Montana, Oregon, South Dakota, Colorado. Colorado's initiative, as Justice O'Connor pointed out, would have term-limited 
sitting appellate judges and justices in Colorado and would quite literally have swept out the majority of those judges, irrespective of whether they were wonderful judges and justices doing an extraordinary job or not so wonderful. In other words, no uh, relationship to merit whatsoever. There's another aspect of the initiatives uh, that is bubbling up in the form of questions around the country about the electoral process, the ways that judges are chosen. You saw a reference to that in the video that commenced this session, talking about uh, the ways in which judicial candidates are sallying forth into the public eye in states where there are contested elections. So the issues are bubbling up in the form of attacks on the judiciary in the initiative form. The issues are bubbling up in the form of contested elections where interest groups are pitted against one another in a way that I would suggest to you is antithetical to an impartial judiciary. So what our institute is attempting to do is dig a little deeper and figure out what this is all about, whether it is indeed just an ebb and flow of history in this country, and we're in one of those periods uh, that Larry has referenced as having occurred before, or whether perhaps this time around it's a little bit different. What I would suggest to you is that uh, this time around it may be a little bit different, and here's why. We all in this day and age are likely to be in court at some point in time. More and more divorces, as we all know, subject people to the court process in a regulatory world where few of us uh, have the privilege of staying within the bounds of the law, be it speeding laws or otherwise, all of the time, we come into contact with the courts. The National Center for State Court Statistics indicate that in 2004, there were 17 million civil cases filed across the United States. Assuming just two parties per case, and clearly there may have been more, that's 34 million people who came into contact with the civil courts in the United States in that year. Our research would indicate that some portion of those, unfortunately, a significant portion, came away dissatisfied, that the courts were not providing the kind of procedural fairness to which Justice Chin referred, the obligation of the courts, the accountability of the courts, and that is where our institute is focusing on trying to figure out what the solutions are. In addition to educating the public about the importance of the courts, in addition to these kinds of conversations, what do we need to be doing to make sure that the courts function better for the people who walk in the front doors of the courts across the nation? Thanks. So, um, it sounds to me really there are two 
two different problems that you have all discussed, all related to the same thing. One is the problem in ordinary litigation. The other is the problem in constitutional litigation. In ordinary litigation, the checks and balances are sort of built into the ability to change the law. And I want to focus on that one first, mostly because I guess, Justice O'Connor, you said, and I think you're right, um, it, it's the, there's more anger, more response, more pushback against courts than you've seen over the course of your life. So the first question is, why? Let's say, what's, what, has, with, what has changed with respect to the handling of just the ordinary litigation that is the meat and potatoes of courts and always has been that's producing this, this upsurge? And of course, following from that, then once we have some sense of that, what, what can or should we do about it? The things we hear about um, from the public in terms of complaints more, most often have to do with judicial decisions touching on some of the tough social policy questions that have been coming to the court since the 1970s in one form or another. State regulation of abortion is one example. That started early on and started being challenged in the courts and courts made decisions and the American public has never been of one voice on what should be done about that. It has been at the bottom of a great deal of discomfort by the public. More recently, we have issues related to gay rights and gay marriage that have been coming to state courts across the country. And those, too, raise questions. Uh, we have the case in California that went to the Ninth Circuit having to do with the word God and the Pledge of Allegiance. And that got people all upset, even though that decision was set aside um, by the Supreme Court. But um, all of these issues and others have been issues that have troubled the public and are somehow tied to the courts because many of them are litigated in court. And I think that's part of the cause. Um, so, and Justice Quillis, I mean, as your institute looks at this, you know, what do you, what is, how do you solve that? What can you do? Because if it's not gonna be enough simply to say to people, we'll go to the legislature and get them to rewrite the laws however you want, if there's gonna be pressure back on the individual judges, um, it's, again, it's still, you know, how do you address that in particular? Clearly there aren't any easy answers, but let me, suggest that part of the answer lies in taking back the debate, not giving away, for example, the term accountability. Accountability can be achieved within the bounds of judicial independence in a way that measures procedural fairness. Courts you can count on is a concept that all of us ought to expect and be comfortable with. So from my perspective, part of what we need to do, those of us who are sort of on the, the forefronts of this issue uh, ideologically, is understand that we have to be on the offensive, not just the defensive. That um, suggesting that judicial independence is a hollowed principle and tenet of our system of life and our system of government is, of course, true. 
and all of us need to be saying that, but at the same time, we need to be out front, uh, being proactive, as you are in California with the establishment of the commission that uh, Chief Justice George has established, as Justice O'Connor is in her outreach across the country, uh, that this needs to be solution-oriented as well as education-oriented because as you suggest, I think it's coming from two places. It's coming from the ideological level to which Justice O'Connor referred, the, the notion that very hot button issues are, ended up, are ending up being decided by the courts as they always have been. And then also from this uh, grassroots notion that more and more people are exposed to the courts, they don't understand the courts, and they're not happy with the courts. So it's from the traffic tickets to the issues about gay marriage uh, and every place in between in a way that I think does indeed separate this particular phase of our nation's history from any other. And I take it by um, offensive there, you mean creating better mechanisms for accountability within the judicial branch? Yes. Well, I think one thing that's contributing to the turmoil at present is the number of states that have contested political election of judges with large campaign contributions being sought and with very ugly television ads being run. This doesn't help. It's just amazing. And it surprises me that so many states want to cling to partisan election of judges. It just doesn't I think fit too well with our notions of impartiality and accountability of judges because if the judge has been given huge campaign contributions from business interests, from lawyers, how can the public feel that they're going to get a fair shake in trial? I have heard amazing things such as Texas is one of those states that has partisan election of judges campaign contributions, um, ads run, and I'm told reliably that um, some lawyers in Texas, if they have a case before a judge who's elected, they manage to confer with each other ahead of time to find out how much money that law firm on each side has contributed to that judge so they can even it up and try to get a fair shake in the court. I mean, this is not my idea of fair and impartial justice in this country. I don't know why we want to have selection systems like that in this country, to tell you the truth. The Chief Justice of Texas, who's now retired, uh, was so fed up with the system that he called a national meeting in Chicago, I think it was about 10 years ago, and he asked me to come. Um, I was prepared to go and talk about the selection system here in California and how it could be tweaked and improved. And after I heard what they do in Texas, what they do in Illinois, and what they do in Ohio, I said, we're not so bad. Right. <laughs> California looks better and better. It's better and better. Right. Well, although I, I just want to say this for one more second because I, of course, I think that makes total sense. Um, it still brings us back to the fact that we've had contested elections since the 1830s or so, and so there is still this change where it's gotten so much worse. 
So I am curious in California, say if we don't have contested elections, although still have some of the same pressures building, even if not as extreme, what, what do the California courts do, for instance, to ensure accountability from the bench so the judges don't send litigants away any unhappier than they have to from just having lost their case, as opposed to giving them lots of other things perhaps to be unhappy about in the way the case was, was handled? Well, there are lots of uh, accountability uh, uh, sign, uh, uh, posts uh, put into this, the system. We have a commission on judicial performance. Uh, this, ha this commission handles any disciplinary matters that uh, uh, have to be uh, uh, looked at with regard to sitting judges. There is the appeal process. That will correct if there are major uh, problems in uh, trial court proceedings. Um, the uh, commission uh, itself, there, there is a commission on judicial appointments. Uh, so there are lots of checks in the process that will take care of it. Uh, in our conference before this, somebody mentioned, what if a judge doesn't do his or her work on time? Well. We have a 90-day rule here in California that applies to all judges. Any case that is submitted must be out within 90 days, including the opinions of the California Supreme Court. Or what happens? Or we don't get paid. Ah. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I should try that with grading. Justice Quillis? There are a few states around the nation that have uh, a different approach to judicial performance evaluation than is currently in place in California, and Colorado is one of those states. Colorado has, and actually it's in the process of being improved as we speak, but Colorado has a process by which judges are evaluated by all of the people who appear before them. Uh, there are surveys sent out to the attorneys, the litigants, the witnesses, the jurors, the court staff, and other judges. And they are asked questions that reflect on procedural fairness components. They're never asked, did you like the judge's decision? They are asked things like, did the judge treat you fairly? Did you feel that you got, uh, that you were heard, that you had a fair hearing? Was the judge's demeanor good? Was he or she prepared? Did he or she understand the law? Was the order that he or she issued understandable and timely? And how well does the judge manage a docket or a caseload? Those kinds of questions that data is then collated and given back to the judge for personal improvement and training kinds of issues and ultimately made public at times when the judge stands for retention. It's my view that that's a very positive way to balance accountability <coughs> and independence and to create a system both where you are shaping the debate and helping people understand what they can and should rightfully expect from their courts, and at the same time holding judges to those kinds of standards. Just one comment. When you think about it, the judicial branch is the only branch of government that explains the reasons for its decisions. 
sometimes in excruciating detail. But how do the other branches do that? Justice Conner, let me come back to you. And the, I said at the beginning, two separate issues. So I want to come to the other issue, which I think for most of the audience, and when most people think about this, they're really thinking about the problem of constitutional interpretation, which is not limited to the Supreme Court, but, but primarily focused there. And so you said that we have this intricate system of checks and balances. And with ordinary litigation, there is, and there's all the kinds of devices that we've been talking about. But when we come to constitutional adjudication, we, we don't have the same system because it's so difficult to amend the Constitution. And well, we do have the same system. We have going on in the country right now, if I may say so, a remarkable series of issues concerning the separation of powers. We're engaged in this conflict in Iraq. We're holding prisoners at Guantanamo. We have allegations of um, a president having exceeded certain powers or Congress having violated the Constitution when it says no habeas corpus right for a prisoner detained at Guantanamo Bay. I mean, we have all these fundamental issues circulating out there right now dealing with separation of powers. It's amazing. But what we don't have, or might not have, this is really my question, is so, and, and the Supreme Court is there to offer a check on the other branches. Well, it is there to resolve issues that come to the court. But, but who checks the court? In other words, to the extent that the concerns arise, you know, and we can think across American history mm -hmm. with decisions that some people will like, some people won't. I mean, it's all over the map. The question is, is there, so Justice Chin says. There's not an appeal to another court from the US Supreme Court's decision. The buck stops there, so to speak, and that was the constitutional structure. If it is a statute that's being interpreted, as is the case perhaps with some of the things Congress has been doing, then Congress can enact another kind of a statute, can effectuate its purpose in a different way. If it is an issue of constitutional law, it is more difficult for Congress to combat that uh, yes, you can amend the Constitution, but it's very hard to do. So again, Congress may try to achieve its goal in other ways that would be constitutional. And that's kind of the exchange that goes on. There so, is but, no appeal from the U.S. Supreme but Court But the other decision. check on the court is that we only decide the cases that are brought in front of us. That's right. We can't sit in our chambers and see a problem out on the corner of the street and say, I think we ought to go solve that problem. We only decide one case at a time. Now, this is problematic when you ask judges to decide broad public policy issues. We're not particularly good at that because we can't do what the legislature does or should do in deciding broad public policy issues. They should talk to a broad cross-section of the community. They bring witnesses in all the time to tell them what those witnesses think should be done by the government on particular issues. We're limited to the record. We can't go out and interview people on the street and say, what do you think about this? So that limitation 
is a limitation on the courts. We are limited to the cases that are brought before us. Well, two different things. That may be true for California. I actually think it's not really true for the Supreme Court in the sense that you can pretty much count on you know one of the 5,000 petitions that are going to come up every year. 10,000. 10,000 petitions. <laughs> right. 5,000, uh, you know, handwritten. So 10,000 petitions. You can count on any issue that's out there that has any, any significance at all actually coming before the court. So the court will have the choice whether to address it or not. So that's why the, the thrust of this is, and this is, here's the unfair way to put it, unfair only because I want to see if I can get you to talk about something from inside the court, no, something that, I'm sorry, something that justices don't normally like to talk about, I think. From inside the court, how do you perceive and deal with the sense that, you know, here's an issue, it's a great public moment, we have to address it, not necessarily because we don't have the discretion to deny cert, but because it's time. And, and we know there's enormous divisions on this issue. So how do you deal with that from inside as a justice? Well, if there is a major issue of federal law that is percolating out in the country and various courts have already addressed it and reached conflicting holdings, that's an issue the Supreme Court will likely take. That's precisely the kind of case it'll take, even though it may not be one that is going to be easily resolved and even though it may be one that um, might be uh, one that would agitate the public, that you're even addressing it at all. But when the public is very agitated, how do you take that into account? Well, you don't, um, except you try to put your best effort into it to make sure you do the best you can. I mean, the court doesn't decide cases based on public opinion or um, CNN or Fox News or anything else. I mean, you try to deal with it as best you can. And we realize that some issues addressed by the court are very important for people, but you're aware of that in putting the work into the case. You want to do a decent job on issues of that type or any type. Now, Larry, I'd be interested in, at, at the risk of asking a question of the questioner, and then maybe it can flow back through the panel. I'd be interested in your observations about whether these times of sort of contentiousness about judicial independence in any way correlate to times when courts themselves are particularly contentious. Um, it was my view on the Colorado Supreme Court that when we would put out an opinion where there were really bitter uh, dissents or uh, where there was a real uh, argument that was made apparent uh, in, with all of its sort of dirty laundry components, that those kinds of opinions tend to incite public um, disagreement and uh, to bring more attention to the, the kinds of issues that we're talking about. And I wonder whether that's true historically. So just historically, this is an unusual period. Traditionally, or, or over most of American history, where you got conflict with the courts was when there was a change, a pretty dramatic change in the dominance of one party to the other, and then the party out of power tended to put pressure on the courts. What's unusual about this period is the attacks on the courts are coming from both the left and the right. Mm -hmm. 
and it's and both sides have their different issues, but this whole period is quite unusual, right? In all three branches of government, both levels of government, there's more sort of historically anomalous political activity happening than at any time in American history, and it's playing out in the courts as well. And don't you think that there are more kind of fundamental questions floating around out there about separation of powers than we've had for many a year? Well, yeah, that's in the last, I'm, I'm thinking, yes. Oh, <laughs> right my. now it's, you know. Yes. Um, although even more if you think, you know, we had an, you had an impeachment a century, you had a contested election a century. We've had them all in this very short period of time. We've had two yes. impeachments in a relatively short period of yes. time. Political parties are in more disarray. So yeah, the whole political mm -hmm. system is, I think, in a... Larry, I would not want to uh, have lost in this discussion on the importance of judicial independence the element of institutional judicial independence. And we've been talking about judges being independent in making decisions, but I also think that you ought to be concerned about whether or not the judicial branch of either your state or the uh, uh, federal system are independent, and are they being adequately financed? We don't have the power of the purse. We have to go to the legislatures to fund the courts. And it is essential that the courts be basically funded. I'm not talking about Taj Mahals. I'm not talking about gilded lilies. I, I, I just want judges to have the basic necessities to do their jobs well. So I think that institutional independence is just as important as the decisional part of it. So I want to go to questions from the audience, and I think there are, are mics. We need to turn the lights uh, I was going to say, I have somebody there who's supposed to be signaling me about time, and I cannot see at all. There we go. Um, and while people line up, I want to give you, I want the same question for all three of you very quickly, which is, if you could do one thing to improve the situation with respect to judicial independence, if I made you czar for a day to do one thing, what would you do? Justice Quillis? I, I would get rid of partisan elections. I would go to uh, a, an appointment uh, retention system. Justice Chen? I would be more concerned about the budget since I have to deal with the legislature every day. So I would be concerned about institutional independence and I would like to set up a mechanism where the judges get basic funding and then if they want something extra, they have to go to whatever committee in the legislature. But every year to go back and fight over the general budget is just, I mean, you spend more time doing that than you do making decisions, and that's not what judges should be doing. Not to mention perhaps a reasonable system of raises. Justice O'Connor? Like Becky Corliss, I, if I could wave a magic wand, I would see to it that all states had the benefits of a merit selection system for judicial selection and retention elections if that's desired by the citizens, which it probably would be. I come from the state of Arizona, and my state had partisan election of judges. I myself ran in a partisan election for the trial bench, so I've been through the process. And I know the caliber of the judges that we had under the old system. When I was in the Arizona Senate, I sponsored legislation to change it and to go to a merit system. We had to get it on the ballot by initiative, but I lived long enough to have the electorate approve it and to see the benefits of it. And it was a dramatic improvement in the caliber of the judges. And having gone through it personally, 
I see the benefits, and that's what I would wish for. Thank you. Okay, um, first question. Yeah, I'd like to point out that um, from a non-lawyer's perspective, uh, an intelligent but yet normal citizen's perspective, you haven't addressed the, the main issue at all for many of us, and that is the fact that the common people are more and more separated from a ruling legal elite. Uh, the lawyers is, the, the, the system of law and legal firms and lawyers, it's one of the biggest businesses that exists in the country today. It's a for-profit business, and I think it should be entirely non-profit, and the entire system needs to be reformed. There, are, there is no check on the legal system as the average individual sees it. You can start a corporation for a few thousand dollars, but if you need to sue someone or if you get sued and need to defend yourself, you can't even represent yourself as the president of a corporation because only a lawyer can represent a corporation. And it costs twenty-five, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 to retain a law firm. Uh, if you represent yourself or try to, the judge is biased against you because you're not a lawyer. The lawyers speak the same language. The judges are lawyers. The politicians who make the laws in this country are lawyers, most of them. So my question to you is, here we have the, one of the biggest businesses of all. The, the lawyers in this country and the law firms, they are taking 15 to 20 percent off the top of the gross national product because of the kinds of money they're making. We could do business without this kind of litigious society where the law firms are making trillions of dollars in profits each year. Haven't, haven't you ever, as justices and judges, seen the fact that there is a ruling elite that is becoming more and more separate from the average person who can't even understand a law that is contained in 50,000 pages of legal documents <laughs> that are very hard? Okay. This is my question. Can you see that yes. we're becoming alienated from the a ruling elite? We've got that. So. Who wants to? Well, By the way, I wish we were that profitable, but. Yeah, the speaker, the speaker raises a very serious problem about the costs of litigation. And the average citizen can't afford to go to court today because the costs are so great. And it is a very serious problem with our system. We have to do a much better job for the, um, lowest income levels in providing free legal service for people who absolutely can't afford it, and for those in the middle for whom it would be too costly, we have to work out a better system too. And one of those ways of doing it is to provide for mandatory mediation of cases of smaller amounts involved, and I think that works pretty well. So. There's a lot we can do, and it's a very serious problem. I, I'm not of the view that lawyers are the problem, but I am of the view, and I do agree, that we do not have a civil justice system that is accessible and affordable and cost-effective, right. where the process is proportional to the issues or the amounts in controversy, right and as part of accountability and part of what the courts need to be doing in the face of this uh, criticism, 
I believe that we need to be meeting those challenges. Mm -hmm. Now, by the way, for all the questioners, this is sort of standard and typically not enforced. Please just ask a question and, and keep it relatively short so we can hear from the panelists who are, after all, who the audience came to see. Please. Yeah, my before, question before is... Before you move on to, that, to, the, to, to your next question, I want all of you to remember that anyone in this country can go into any courtroom and file a complaint at any time. And a impartial judge will hear that, and it doesn't make any difference whether you're rich or poor. How many countries have that kind of judicial system? Now, our system is not perfect. It needs to be improved. We need to process cases more efficiently and effectively. But basically, we have a system for anyone. And even if you can't afford the filing fee, it will be waived. So please, let's not be too hard on the system that we have. Okay. My um, comment is, is different. I don't think that, I'm not worried so much about law being a profitable business or whatever. Um, corporations want to pay $500 an hour for a lawyer, that's fine. The problem is accessibility and the problem is also a perceived justice. One of the biggest areas that people first come into contact nowadays is through arbitration. You are a credit card member or you're something else, you perceive you're going into an arbitration. 94% of arbitrators in that particular section rule for the corporations. There's a perceived misdirection of justice starting at the lower levels all the way through and then you see where you have these elections you've talked about. How do you change some of these basic systems through legislation or through the courts because the, the top judges are seen in the light of these smaller decisions. I'm not sure I understand the question, but it has to do with the fact that many uh, sellers of goods or providers of service make the purchaser sign a contract that provides yeah. for the use of arbitration in the event of a dispute. And so uh, you may find yourself not able to go in the courtroom, as Justice Chen has said, but having to go before arbitration. And the questioner says, well, most of the time, the arbitrator rules for the company. I don't know if that's true or not. I really have no mm. basis for knowing. But you have put your finger on another issue of concern to people, which is, should we, as a matter of public policy allows so many of those arbitration clauses to be used. And that's a matter for legislators to consider, not courts. If they're so far, both at the federal level and in most states, the use of arbitration clauses in contracts for purchase or services is allowed. So if there's a, an abuse of that, then the legislative branch needs to take a look at it. Well, my question was, um, if it's okay, I'd like to just move to another, please. So uh, the process of election you described in Texas definitely sounds really strange. But even when judges are being appointed, today it's some, you know, it's a Democrat or a Republican doing the appointment, and most parties, both parties seem to be trying to apply litmus tests of various form. And in fact, you hear expressions like, we're going to control the courts by appointing the right people. In that environment, isn't an appointed judge 
is that person truly being married? Is it a meritocratic process, or is it seen more as a political, um, shall I say, you know, appointment? Uh, is the appointment better than being elected? Let's put it this way. As, as I understand the question, what you're suggesting is that even an appointment system is fundamentally partisan. Is that exactly what exactly. you're suggesting? The appointment systems in most of the states uh, to which I was referring and I believe to which Justice O'Connor was referring uh, are in fact not just uh, partisan and hopefully not partisan much at all. Uh, in Colorado, for example, the one with which I'm the most familiar, the nominating commission is chosen by representatives of all three branches of government, the governor, the president of the Senate, the speaker of the House, and the chief justice. Those are the people who cull the applicants and then submit names to the governor. He then chooses, and in Colorado it's only been a he, uh, chooses among the nominees whose names are before him the person chosen then stands for a retention election. So yes, there is a partisan component to that in that the governor gets to choose among these individuals uh, whose names are presented to him, but the partisanship is very seriously diminished uh, when you compare it to a straight election system where people have to raise money and stand up and take positions. So. What I would suggest to you is that that's clearly the better way to go, and it um, diminishes the impact of politics in a process that should be apolitical. I just want to add one very quick note. In most of the rest of the world, uh, the appointments to courts, and an easy way to control this is, it's nomination from the executive, approval from the legislature, as in this country, but a requirement of a supermajority so that you have to get agreement on both sides of the aisle, which is why I thought actually the filibuster in the Senate serves a really positive function in the appointments of our federal bench. And of course, the effort to get rid of it was exactly the effort to prevent the Democrats from forcing a compromise on judicial appointments. Okay, I want to get straight to the question, but I just want to uh, um, start with the idea that we're really talking about two different things here, mostly the idea of treating judges just like any other candidate. And that, of course, is uh, the function actually of some recent Supreme Court decisions which Justice O'Connor is familiar with, like Republican Party of Minnesota versus White, where we're really, and you see this in other um, states, people uh, asking for judicial questionnaires to get judges' views about things before um, the, the judge is, is elected. So if, if judicial elections, and I know Justice O'Connor in that case also said that judicial election should be not be the norm. Um, but as long as we have them, my, my question is, what kinds of things could we change about them, uh, including perhaps public financing that would take some of the money uh, pressures out of it? Uh, and then the second question really goes to some of the concerns that have been raised about the transparency and legitimacy of the courts. And if we take out the election function, will people feel even more disconnected or alienated as they uh, has, has been expressed already today uh, from the courts. Um, and is it really a, a, a problem of educating people about what the courts do? I know it's very opaque. I think education is key to all of this. And I suppose you know that many states have stopped making civics and government a requirement to get out of high school. 
I mean, we, we now have a very well-intended law, No Child Left Behind, to help us with science, math, and reading, but that's the only thing the kids are being tested on. And the result has been the abandonment of many other courses, such as civics and history. I find that very troublesome, and I think we have to work in each state to try to make sure that our states still require the teaching of history and civics. This is critical. Um, Justice O'Connor, uh, I want to thank you for your service on the Supreme Court. When <laughs> you don't, you don't, you don't need to thank me. I had a pretty good job for quite a while. <laughs> um, I became a member of the bar just about when you were appointed, and it was a, a role model and very inspirational for the women who were joining the bar. Um, I must say, and I've always had the, held the Supreme Court in highest regard, but I must say that in 2000 I was disappointed in the decision of the court um, with respect to the election, not because of, I had a partisan um, feeling, although I did, but I was disappointed because I didn't think that the decision was, I, I didn't think the court acted independently of, of politics. And I'd like your comment on that decision. <laughs> and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'd love to hear. <laughs> I would love to hear your reflections on that at this point, several years later. Well, I'll say just a couple of things about it. Um, it did raise issues about whether Florida was following federal law in a federal election. And you have to remember that in a federal election, and a presidential election is such, that federal law applies to many aspects of what the state does in um, following the election process. And there were allegations that in several counties in Florida, that Florida was making arbitrary decisions on the counting of ballots and not following what was allegedly federal requirements. And so I think the court had a proper petition in front of it, and it took actually two cases, not one but two. The first was resolved unanimously, the second was not. And I understand that since it was a partisan election that um, there would be concerns by those for the losing party, which happened to be the Democratic Party in Florida. Now, uh, having said that, maybe it would ease your mind to remember that there were three recounts of all the ballots in the four disputed counties following that decision. And those recounts were carried out by the press. And I can assure you they were hoping to find error. I mean, very much hoping to, they didn't. The results would have been the same. So let's go on. Thank you. Okay. The proliferation of media covering the Iraq conflict has awakened the public to a degree I don't believe has ever happened before. What effect has that had on of the judicial and the pressure now on all three forms of government? 
three so branches. The, the question is what, you know, there's just the general awakening of public yeah. and yes, politicization of the public. So we're in a time when the public is more engaged in politics than has probably been true Thank since you, yes. the New Deal era. Or, and or, so the question is. How does the court, has, is that one of the other things that's putting pressure on the courts and how do the courts sort of cope with the sense of just a rising general political tension? Well, we maybe all want to address it. I, I don't see how that changes anything. As I said before, I really don't think at the U.S. Supreme Court level, from my experience there, that decisions are affected by public concern or public opinion. I mean, the justices still try to look at the provisions of the Constitution or laws being raised and decide them on that basis in light of the precedents of over 200 years. I don't think they're deciding it on the basis of public concern or uh, television coverage. I concur. Oh. I, I've been on the California Supreme Court now for 11 years. I don't remember ever talking with my colleagues about how many pickets are out in front of the courtroom. Although there was a rubber ducky out in front of our court the other day during the conference, we did spend some time talking about that. <laughs> and I guess all I would add is uh, give me an engaged citizenry rather than an apathetic citizenry anytime. I'd much rather have a country where people are concerned and focused and paying attention even yes. if there is dispute or concern than a country of apathy. Um, my only regret is that the uh, degree of concern tends to be as partisan as it is, that people polarize sort of at the drop of a hat. And I don't think that that's the way you get to solutions. Thank you. <laughs> I'd like to ask the panel a question. Perhaps they can give me their perspective on this very important issue, um, which I feel is not discussed much. And if you'll forgive me, I'll just give you a few statistics. I'm a family advocate. I'm talking about, I agree with the person that said that, in general, the American public does not have access to the legal system. I volunteered with a group that said 95 to, I can't remember the exact percentage, Americans do not have access to the legal system because it's too expensive. Um, and I just want to talk about child welfare dependency cases. Um, the rule is hearsay generally. Um, uh, LA County journalists documented that 98% of the judges' decisions were, excuse my French, but rubber stamps of the child welfare agency recommendation. Um, there is a, one does have a constitutional right to redress and even jury of one's peers. However, that does not extend to a non-criminal matter. One also does have a right to effective counsel. However, the U.S. Supreme Court has only extended that to criminal matter. Um, oh, I, the, I'm sorry. We really do want to hear your question. I'm just trying to give you background. Uh, the, the, the prosecution has deep pockets. This is my question, okay? I'm, I'm asking them to comment on this. Um, there are no protections for parents. This is a constitutional issue, however. Is there a question? Yes, I'm asking how, how can there be um, 
justice for families in a situation where even the U.S. Supreme Court has said independency hearings that the state does not have to appoint counsel, and even if counsel is appointed, that that counsel does not have to be effective. There is a 14th Amendment right to care, custody, and companionship of one's own child, and that's a protected liberty interest, and yet both the, the state courts and the U.S. Supreme Court do not seem to protect that, and it's not something you hear about. The ruling court is hearsay, and it's okay. uh, interpret so, what the question I, I think the, it's a substantive question. Yes, I thank right. you, so I agree. She was, basically, she wants to ask about whether there should be a right to counsel in uh, well, my question would be what can be done case. since it seems that our Constitution only protects one when it's charged criminally and generally one is charged civilly and yet this is one one, one Please, loses well, one. I think we we do understand but it's not the point so uh, it's also I'm, I don't know if you want to address that or not we really don't want to I think engage in a debate about particular constitutional issues it does raise the question of course back to when you have strongly strong feelings on both sides and people feel the court has gotten it wrong in a significant way, what are, your, what are your options for recourse? Well, I think garnering public opinion to try to get change affected. And no doubt a state could provide some kind of legal counsel in those situations if the state legislature felt that that was needed and appropriate. There's nothing that prevents it. So maybe you ought to make a pitch to your state legislature. See what they do with it. That is true in California, however, that, that does not give one a right to effective counsel going to federal court. I have a real question. <laughs> I did not hear you make it. It was a real question. Let's, I mean, you know, people feel very strongly. I have a concise question. Thank I you. didn't hear you talk about jurors. I want to know if your studies are considering uh, court management of jurors, which involves millions and millions of people, and whether that affects when it's done well or done poorly. Uh, citizens' perception of the courts. Do you understand the question? Well, yeah. Why don't you talk I'd, about I'd like to answer the question that I think it is. You can you can refocus me uh, if I'm not responding. It is it is nationally true that fewer and fewer cases are going to jury trial. No, I'm talking about jury panels. In other words, you get millions of people are on jury panels. Some courts, I think, trial courts manage it very well others don't. This affects citizens' views of the courts, so I wonder if your studies are going to analyze trial courts to see how they're affecting mm -hmm. public perception of courts by the management of the jury system. I think that's an excellent question, and I am a big proponent of the courts managing jurors well. Now, I was only on the trial court for about three years, but I had uh, many, many jury trials and my policy was never keep the jurors waiting i told the lawyers if we tell the jurors to be here at nine o'clock we start at nine o'clock we don't hear motions we don't hear anything else i think it's really important for the judges to respect the jurors now i was recently called to jury duty on in alameda County. <laughs> But it was remarkable because you can now do it online. You don't have to wait for somebody to answer the telephone. Uh, everything is done online. Uh, I thought it was a great improvement rather than waiting for 10 minutes to somebody answer the phone and then 
their not knowing the answer and then having to go down and wait in, in a huge uh, conference room. There, there was none of that. We also have this um, one day, if you're, if you're not uh, sitting, uh, if, you're, if you're called to a jury panel and uh, you're not uh, uh, called to the uh, courtroom, you're finished with your jury duty for that period of time. So I think that we are doing a lot better, but if you have other suggestions, don't hesitate to uh, let us know because I think that the way we handle uh, jurors is very, very important. I mean, after all, you're not getting paid a lot of money to serve on juries. So the, um, the, the function that you serve in the system is very, very important. I think you should be respected for it. Thank you. And actually, if I may just add a, a very small point, the studies nationwide do reflect that courts are doing a pretty good job in this arena. That People who are called for jury duty have a better opinion of the courts when they leave the courthouse than they did when they showed up. And also, people who serve on juries are more likely to vote. They feel more invested in the system. So what we need to do is get more of you to be on juries more often. That's right. <laughs> I, I want to underline what uh, Justice mm -hmm. Corliss said. Right. When, when I was hearing jury trials, I sent out questionnaires to all of the jurors who served and asked them what was it like, how can it be improved. Uh, I uniformly got back complimentary uh, responses from those jurors. So uh, if this is an indication nationwide, I hope it is, uh, the jurors were positively responding to what they saw in the courtroom. Um, this will have to be the last question. Um, the retention elections, aren't those also a big problem politically? I, I think of the Rose, in a way I'm amazed that you say this is a new phenomenon because the, the Roseburg Court in California, a large number of justices were swept off after a very political politicization around um, capital punishment. And so I'm kind of amazed that it's really true in California if, what you're saying, that you don't think about the public after what happened with the Roseburg Court. I, I did not say that we have a perfect system. Now, I myself uh, went through a uh, sort of a, I had a retention election in which there was a challenge. The Chief Justice and I were challenged. Now. I was ready to go back to the conference in Chicago and say, oh, this is really bad. But when I saw what was happening in other states compared to what we have, it's not so bad. Maybe it can be tweaked. We're going to look at it. Uh, I understand exactly what you're talking about. There were three justices who were not retained in that election. Um, so we're going to look at it. Um, any final words from anyone on the panel? I would just like to encourage all of you to pay attention to what your state is doing in terms of civics and government education, and also in encourage you to communicate with your state chief justice about any deficiencies you've become aware of in the jury system. I think that's important that they know about it. And 
try to pay some attention to this problem that we tried to talk about today of um, guaranteeing the functioning of a system of checks and balances among the branches of government that the framers of the Constitution designed and hoped to put in place. It was a pretty good system they designed. And I don't think we ought to let it get seriously out of kilter. So your interest and concern about it would make a difference. I mean, it is uh, the citizens that all these institutions have to try to serve. And so your information and your concern about it at the end of the day makes a huge difference. And thanks for listening. Great. I'm going to make you do that again. I just want to thank you all for coming, and I want to thank yes. the panelists for their time and wonderful insights. Thank and what's the score of the football game? Do we know? <laughs> what? A tie. Oh, dear. Well, you better all go over to the stadium. <laughs>